Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the first of a series of Comparative Media Insights. Uh, and tonight, we're really honored to have Ian Bogos with us. Ian is professor of digital media uh, in the School of Literature, Communication, and Culture at uh, Georgia Tech. Well known to all of you through his many publications. And um, wow, tons to mention here. Yeah. But I think maybe what's important to talk about is where you're, where you're headed. We'll hear a bit of that tonight. But uh, alien phenomenology, or what it's like to be a thing, is in press and coming out. Um, and let's see, object-oriented ontology will be coming out soon in, I guess, in a few months. Yeah, that, both of those next year. Next year. Yeah. Um, and of course, uh, Ian and our own Nick Montfort uh, edit platform study series here at MIT. Which has new books coming out next year. Two new titles in the spring. Great. Yeah. So be sure to plug them. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So without further ado, Ian, welcome and uh, thank you. New. Thank you very much. It's a it's a, a great pleasure uh, to be here uh, speaking to you. Um, the title of this talk is "The Cartoonist and the Whaler," and I promise that it will make sense uh, eventually. So on the morning of Sunday, the sixteenth of November, nineteen eighty the French Marxist philosopher Louis Althusser strangled his wife, Hélène Legotien. Althusser claimed that he had been massaging her neck when he discovered he had accidentally killed her. These massages were a common practice, he would later report, although he acknowledged that the, the nape was a more common target for massage than the jugular notch. <coughs> Althusser had long suffered from bipolar disorder and was unfit. He was judged unfit for his own trial. Instead, he was committed to the Saint Anne Mental Hospital, where he remained institutionalized for three years. After his release, Althusser withdrew from intellectual and public life. In 1985, halfway between the killing of his wife and his own death, he published a memoir entitled L'Avenir Dure Longtemps, or The Future Lasts a Long Time. Althusser had cribbed the phrase from Charles de Gaulle, who had used it to endorse a long view on military and diplomatic acts. Speaking about uh, Stalin's Lublin Committee and the origins of the Cold War, de Gaulle had said, the future lasts a long time. All things are possible, even the fact that an action in accord with honor and honesty ultimately appears to be a prudent political investment. We talk about the future so often today that it has become a kind of cliché. The future of media, the future of food, the future of the university, the future of children, the future of the book, fill in the blank. We're obsessed with the future. But what, why, what we mean by it is usually quite modest. Futurity today is about nextness not about longevity. What's next in management? What's next in science, reputation, the internet? Nextness is trend fodder, essentially, an endless flow of novelty that we surf like waves. The future, it turns out, only lasts a little while. Enough time to alter quarterly reports or to mark the fleeting tenure of a CEO or a football coach or a startup or a nonfiction trade book. For the past five years or so, I have been working under the shingle of the future of journalism, 
on projects that adapt the medium of video games into the domain of news. And those projects, which I've been grouping under the name News Games, uh, emerged partly from my earlier work on games as a persuasive medium, particularly work in games and politics, which took place both in my commercial studio and in my academic research. I want to share with you today some of my experiences mediating between nextness and longevity in the future of journalism uh, through this lens uh, of news games. Uh, and I'll, I'll warn you in advance that, that these results uh, and my feelings about them are somewhat ambiguous. So this isn't the story of uh, the obvious future success of games as news, nor is it a story of their obvious failure. Instead, it's a story that uh, maybe is somewhat like Althusser's, one of a kind of quantum uncertainty, a sort of Schrodinger's media theory, if you'll allow me. Um, and I think it has lessons to teach us about media studies of all kinds, not just those that apply to news or that apply to games. So let's start with uh, a simple question. Um, what, what is a news game anyway? What do I mean by news games? Um, for me, it's an application of journalism in video game form. And I mean this to be a very broad definition on purpose. It suggests the most general approach possible. News games use games to do journalism. And the precise definition of journalism here is broad, open to considerable interpretation, open to disagreement. The idea was to create as large a possibility space and ask what happens when we try to put games to work in the interest of journalism? What sort of examples do we see? I was lucky enough to be able to conduct about three years of research on this topic uh, under the Knight Foundation's support. And the results of that research were published as a book, uh, which I wrote with two of my doctoral students, Simon Ferrari and Bobby Schweizer. And in the book, we describe seven areas, genres, maybe, uh, of news gaming, uh, which are listed here, current events, infographics, documentary, puzzles, literacy, community, and platforms. And we don't intend this list to be complete, but to, to be, be a kind of diverse sampling of what, what appeared to us to be the most promising or the most obvious uh, areas of news games application. And I, I want to say a little bit about each of them to give you a lay of the land so you understand how I've been approaching uh, this topic in general. And then after that, I want to show you some new approaches, some new work we've been, uh, we've been doing in my news games lab uh, at Georgia Tech. So let's start with current event games. These are small, short form, quickly created games that are meant to comment on or explain timely issues in, in events. And uh, the three of us designate three further subcategories, uh, which we name editorial, tabloid, and, and, and reportage. And those correspond roughly with opinion, sensationalism, and explanation. So an editorial game like this one that I made about, uh, about the TSA, uh, this is a commentary game. You know, these are often characterized by the same kind of wry criticism or, or black humor that's found in opinion columns, cartoons, fake television news, uh, other forms of commentary that we're familiar with. Uh, you know, and, and in this case, the game was about uh, uh, how changing, changing rules in airport security only confuse and don't necessarily protect. Plus, you can play it in line at the airport on your iPhone. This is a selection of, uh, of choice tabloid games, uh, of which there are innumerable. Uh, you can find them uh, more easily than any other genre. We have the uh, So You Think You Can Drive Mel tabloid game at top left, which 
kind of operationalization of Mel Gibson's most famous drunken driving citation. Um, we have uh, Dick Cheney quail hunting. There's a, there's a whole mess of these Dick Cheney quail hunting games back from, uh, from, that, from that event. The uh, Hothead Zidane uh, uh, headbutting game from the World Cup 2006 final uh, at the bottom. And then um, a, a very strange uh, example at the bottom right, a, a game about the uh, so-called Octomom that was created by a French marketing agency as a sort of way to show how they could produce viral media. Uh, so in all of these cases, the goal is uh, sensationalism, you know, particularly link bait. Like, let me, I, I can get you to click and, and, and look at my web page. And uh, uh, reportage games, uh, by contrast, seek to present news items without heavy bias. This is one that we did at the studio that the New York Times published uh, called Points of Entry, which was about the uh, merit-based green card evaluation system that had been proposed uh, under the the McCain-Kennedy Immigration Reform Act of 2007. Um, and if you remember, this, this was a controversial topic, the so-called points-based uh, green card system. Um, and I don't want to linger too much on this example, but I still contend that it uh, was one of the most comprehensive pieces of coverage of this legislation published in any format, because most of the, most of the press coverage was simply kind of copy-paste statements from, uh, from Kennedy publicity campaigns. So that's a, that's a view of, of current event games. Uh, another genre we endorse uh, we call uh, infographic, playable infographics or infographic games. Um, so of course, infographics, visualizations have a long tradition in newsmaking. And one way that we can intersect games um, and infographics is by well, kind of taking those information design traditions and making them more game-like, more playable. And, and these results may not exactly be like traditional games, but they, they may have game-like features, uh, goals, directions, uh, ways of taking large data systems and giving citizens a better um, synthetic experience uh, of them, a better sense of what the material they represent. Uh, and so one of our motivations in this category is to, uh, uh, to work against the, to the, the sort of chart porn trend that, that, we, that we see today, in which you have a, attractive, complex information visualizations that people find really appealing, they're sexy, you know, that you, you kind of want to share online um, and talk about, but don't necessarily work journalistically. They don't necessarily help people understand ideas or make decisions. This is an example from the Times called um, How I Spend My Day or How People Spend Their Day, which, which does exactly that and has all these categories. And it's interesting. Um, and you can, you can explore it and, and you can kind of look at the information. Um, but it's not exactly synthetic. It doesn't answer any questions about how you might lead your life. Uh, so one of, the, one of the kind of trends that we're involved in right now is one in which information diagrams have become entertainment, essentially. But there are other trends in infographics that are kind of working against that trend uh, and that lead to greater information synthesis, not, not just greater spread through communications channels. Uh, this is a well-known uh, information visualization by Martin Wattenberg that, that was created as an accompaniment to a baby name book that his wife wrote. Uh, it's called Name Voyager. And the way it works is that you can type in some or all of a name, and you can see a graph of its popularity uh, over the past century. And you see the, you know, the different genders are, are indicated in different colors. And if you choose, you can just type in like a part of a name and see you know, different patterns. Uh, so there, there's an, like an interesting and, and surprising example of directed uh, synthetic data understanding that comes out of an infovis like this. You can ask this, this chart questions, and it can help you answer them. You know, what, what's a name that was popular at the turn of the 20th century that declined and then returned to popularity? Or you know, what's a name that rose and fell within a particular decade? 
it's just a starting point. It's not necessarily functioning uh, journalistically, but if we, if we follow that thread, then other playable infographics, like uh, this is another New York Times um, visualization called the Rent Buy Calculator, um, we have something that, that works more, uh, more closely along the lines of the concerns of traditional journalism. Its use is, is directed toward answering questions, providing information that support goals. In this case, a question like, uh, what parameters would I need to meet to buy a house in a particular location or under particular circumstances? That's the function of the, the journalistic function of the infographic. Some, some of these infographic games are evolved from, from maps, like the redistricting game, which is about, about gerrymandering, developed at USC. And others are, are drawing from charts or, or diagrams. Uh, this is American Public Media's Budget Hero, uh, which measures a, a player's success um, based on a combination of the longevity of the federal budget they build, and also how well the player met certain value goals, which, which he or she would set at the start of the game. So you can say, you know, education is very important to me. And the game will ask, well, how well did you support education over the, the duration of the budget that you built? Uh, games can also adapt the traditions of, of documentary and investigative reporting. And these games are often longer form. They may resemble traditional video games more than the other categories. Uh, and there are uh, different approaches to documenting actuality in, in documentary games as well. And we've broken those down into three categories, again, spatial, operational, and, and procedural, which I'll describe in brief. So a spatial documentary game is something like this Berlin Wall mod. That was, this was created in a, was a mod of Half-Life 2. Um, but it's just trying to recreate a, a place in time. You know, what does it feel like to be somewhere? And, and as a result, it lacks other kinds of realities. You can you know, run around without alerting suspicion. You can run back and forth across Checkpoint Charlie without consequence. Uh, but the very experience of being somewhere um, can be effectively produced in these modern real-time 3D games. So a, a game like 9-11 Survivor is a more harrowing example of this kind of documentary experience, of recreating uh, the, the sense of being in a particular location at a particular time. Operational reality games uh, are something more like this, this 2004 mission from the episodic news-based war game, Kuma War, which is produced out of New York. Uh, th these kind of games are just trying to recreate events, the experience of events. Uh, and this, this example is the infamous Vietnam Swift Boat campaign by, by John Kerry, who at the time this was released was also running for US president, and, and this event was hotly debated. Um, the, the mission inside of the Kuma War system, uh, it just took the official record and you know, kind of reproduced it. So you could walk through that experience as, as if you were in the pilot seat. And then uh, uh, the, the kind of game we call procedural reality games or procedural documentary games strive, instead of recreating the event, they strive to recreate the underlying systems. It could, could be material systems, could be social systems, the things that brought a particular event about in the first place. Um, so a game like this, another controversial game, uh, JFK Reloaded, um, these games are offering interactions with the rules and behaviors of some sort of substrate out of which events percolate. In the case of this game, it was uh, essentially just a sophisticated physics and ballistics simulation. And the goal of the game, according to the creators, was to offer a mass forensic examination of the, of the Warren Commission report. So switching gears a little bit, uh, news, it turns out, has a century-long history 
of providing uh, puzzles. And, and this puzzle category was a, was a real surprise as we, as we pursued this research. The crossword is the, is the most well-known example. The Sudoku is, is gaining popularity today. And, and puzzles, quizzes, other things like this, they, they don't really carry news content, but they, they sort of lead readers to that content, or they, or they provide an incentive for them to procure the paper in the first place. And, and in that respect, the, the newspaper puzzle relates directly to the practices of news readership. So when, when the print paper was still king, the crossword puzzle acted as this kind of ritual, this ritual practice. You know, this is a way of like warming up for the day. You do the crossword to turn your brain on or to give yourself a sense that there's something you can solve, that the world is masterable at some small scale. And when you look at it through this lens, the crossword is not an incidental part of the print paper, um, but a, a primary entry point into it, along with the comics, the opinion page, sports page. Uh, and then, you know, like once you've done the crossword or as much of it as you care to do, you have the rest of the paper, which you, you might as well read. And, and there's some puzzle news games that have attempted to kind of recapture the, pu the puzzle's legacy as a news entry point and to, to use that as a hub from which other content can be pursued. This is a, a casual downloadable game called Scoop that takes RSS feeds and uses them to generate these crossword-style casual puzzles. They're not really crossword puzzles, but they, they look like crossword puzzles. And then you could link out to the story from the, uh, from the feed. And of course, you get a new one every day, which is essential to these puzzle games. They're ref refreshing and kind of doing them as ritual uh, because there's always new RSS feed um, headlines. Or this is another one called the Crickler puzzle that is an attempt to reinvent the crossword for the internet by exploding the, the gridded layout and retaining the conventions of interlocking letters. One of the problems with the crossword is, is how uh, laborious it is to construct. And this is an example that can be done um, in a more automated fashion. Uh, but with few exceptions, the, the newspaper business just totally missed the fact that the casual and social game markets are kind of the progeny of the newspaper puzzle. Uh, and those markets, not incidentally, are now worth um, several billion dollars uh, annually. It's a blind spot that reminds you a little bit of the emergence of online person-to-person -person sales uh, in the 1990s, uh, most notably with you know, eBay and later Craigslist. But, but even, even in a more contemporary example, something like Google AdSense or Facebook or Groupon or you know, these other services which have superseded the classifieds, uh, as the most effective way to sell local goods and services. Um, I think the difference is that the newspaper business always knew that they were in the classifieds business. They just missed this digital transition. Uh, but I don't, I don't think the newspaper business ever realized they were in the casual games business. But games can also be used to teach players about the practice of, of journalism. And we call this genre literacy news games. Some games are created explicitly to train journalists, either in school or, or sometimes to inspire young people to consider journalism as a career. There are some of these at the museum in DC. Uh, here's one, Global Conflicts Palestine, that uh, puts the player in the role of a journalist interviewing subjects and creating a story under editorial pressure, having to collect information, having to follow leads, working under the ideological pressure and time pressures of particular newsrooms, and assembling all those together into uh, a coherent story. Um, so you know, it, can, it can be used pedagogically, but is also used as a kind of way of introducing people to the idea of what a reporter does. Um, but there are these other very strange uh, games that, that we call literacy news games that look just like commercial games, that in, in some cases 
are literally commercial entertainment games. And, and the reason for that is that they act as advocacy, or they could act as advocacy if they were honed to do so. Um, Beyond Good and Evil, which is, which is this screenshot here, um, is a game that allegorizes the role of the free press in political life. And it does this by putting the player inside an, of an experience in which um, the real behavior of the, the government in this, uh, this sci-fi uh, society is not the same as the story that they're telling uh, citizens about themselves and their motivations. Um, and so you know, there's a sense in which a game like this is advocating for the role of journalism in society. And given that uh, advocates of journalism as a, not just a discipline or an activity, but as a profession, have been lamenting the loss of some of these journalistic values among the press and the public, it's sort of ironic that those proponents ha have also kind of failed to evangelize effectively for themselves among that public. I think it's, uh, it's interesting that a game like Beyond Good and Evil might show us how the kind of largely apolitical, techno-libertarian commercial game industry has, has done an admirable job, by accident even, uh, championing a relatively traditional notion of social responsibility journalism, e even though they may not even have meant to do so. We also have new genres of games uh, played out in the world that may be mediated or facilitated by computer technologies. Um, there's lots of these, you know, geocaching, augmented reality games, alternate reality games, or ARGs, big games, there's a lot of names they go by. And, and since these games have to be played in specific locations, they offer an opportunity to get players out into the world, to you know, provide them with frameworks and incentives to participate in different activities and communities. And that's, that's the reason we use this frame, uh, community game, to describe uh, this genre, which I like a lot better than like alternate reality game or what have you. So this is a strange genre because it's, it's sort of so, it's so, there's so much potential and so little example. This is a shot from uh, the well-known ARG, I Love Bees, which was originally created as a promotional game, a very large-scale promotional game to market uh, Halo 2 when it was released many years ago. But it took place in these real-world settings. And you, know, you could look at it from one side and say, this is just a marketing stunt. And, and it succeeded as a marketing stunt. Um, but it also underscores the potential of these, of these community news games. Uh, because you know, in this game, players were forced to uh, find these clues that led them to places in the world. In this case, uh, GPS-coded coordinates led them to pay phones at which they would receive portions of a serialized uh, narrative in this sort of uh, science fiction game. Um, and, and in so doing, they had to scrutinize uh, places and go to places they may not have otherwise chosen to, to, to go to. Uh, maybe a better example of that is this, this other game called Last Call Poker, which is uh, basically Texas Hold'em in a cemetery. Uh, and and you, you assemble your hand with a combination of, of ordinary cards and by assembling values off of tombstones. And there's an algorithm by which the shape of the tombstone combined with the death year uh, creates the suit and face value in the card. And you have to touch them in a certain way to create the hand. Uh, so it's, it's a bit strange, but, but it's kind of meant to be strange. The game hoped to call attention to these public cemeteries and to reinvigorate them as... Um, social spaces as public spaces, the way they would have been seen uh, in the 19th century um, by putting them to use as social spaces rather than dead spaces, if you'll forgive me the pun. And one of the, one of the trends that the, that the game hoped to intervene in was, was the tendency to relocate cemeteries that happened to sit on high value uh, land you know, so that you can put commercial development in. 
uh, and, the, and the designers hope that you know, kind of any kind of attachment or familiarization with, with a space like this might lead to, to greater engagement with it. Uh, and then finally, the last category uh, is, is platforms. Uh, the idea here is that journalists can invent new infrastructures or repurpose existing infrastructures for the development of new forms of games. Uh, and they can create you know, these new platforms upon which they also create, that they then create new examples of games. And this is maybe the most speculative of, of the genres we advocate for. Uh, fantasy sports is a, is a good model to, uh, by which to understand the potential of, um, of news game platforms. So you th if you think about how, how fantasy sports work, they, they, t they translate kind of the exhaust of, of one system, sports, into the fuel for another, fantasy sports. So there's all this data that exists in the world already, sports statistics, that, you, that are being repurposed into, uh, into these games. And when you play a fantasy sport, of course, you're taking you know, that information. You're taking real athletes and their performance and then kind of reconfiguring them into these teams that you then play in a competitive way week after week. So fantasy sports relies on the infrastructure of sports news, of sports record keeping, and doesn't need to reinvent that infrastructure. It just takes some of the material from it and uses it in a different way. And in that way, fantasy sports show how creating a, a news game platform uh, is sometimes just a matter of taking what you already have and kind of looking at it in a different way. Then we have you know, other examples. We can, we can see examples of games themselves becoming a platform for news. Uh, this is Play the News, which is a now defunct news-driven prediction market with, that used incentives and competition to encourage players to dig deeper into the potential implications of, of news stories. There are other examples of this, especially on mobile devices now. And one of the things that the creators of this game found was that the conversation that took place in the game context about, this, about the issue was like much more sophisticated and respectful than the kind of conversation you see at the bottom of any given news website. Or um, even, even stranger, news organizations could create tools and services that they could use, but also that they could put to use in other contexts or even distribute or sell for other people to use in making their own news games. So imagine if we had a kind of you know, news-based middleware uh, of sorts that was you know, about politics or economics or social behavior or climate or energy or other issues. And you could use those to make your own games, or you could kind of like turn them into this, this software infrastructure layer that you know, might make its way into Grand Theft Auto or something. There are some precursors that, that kind of point in this direction. This is a screenshot from a strategy game called Democracy 2, which is a political management game that's driven entirely by all these, these data tables that the developer distributes along with the game. So you can alter them yourself if you want to tweak it. Uh, but, but the creator, who's just an independent developer in the UK, continuously publishes updates based on current events. You'll get like this you know, software update message, and it describes all of the recent events or trends in the news that, uh, that are now uh, that now can be experienced inside of the game. So I, I see the initial news games research in the book um, partly, maybe largely as a research tool, as an advocacy tool, uh, as a way of, of communicating to newsmakers, uh, to journalists, to, to educators, that this, there's, a, there's, a, there's a way to use games in the news. Uh, but the research also has another function, which is sort of ideational or, or, or even kind of design-oriented. Design and, and in the lab, after we were done with the book, we tried to eat our own dog food in that respect and sort of sit down and look at the possibility space that was suggested by these, these genres of news game and to ask what we could do next with it. Uh, and, and in that respect, we're also interested in maintaining a kind of dialectical relationship between media theory and media practice. 
So motivating industry is, is one aim, and, and I think the book has made some success in doing that. Some of the examples have that I've worked on commercially. But research lab development may also shorten the feedback loop um, and also short circuit some of the problems that arise when you roll out new ideas or try to roll out new ideas in conservative industries of which journalism is definitely one. And we can talk more about that. I haven't included much of that in this talk. If you want to discuss all of the problems I've experienced, we can talk about that in the Q&A. So what we did is we sat down with this, with this model, with this taxonomy, and, and looked at opportunities, especially opportunities across genres, because the genres are pliant and there are many games that seem to participate in several genres. And we wondered what we could do with them. We were particularly interested in current events. It, it seemed like the easiest to understand. There were the greatest number of examples for us to draw from. And then also puzzles, um, because I think this puzzle category was amazing and interesting and overlooked. Uh, and that led us to this project called The Cartoonist. So I need to give you a little bit of background, which is that the, the editorial cartoon actually turns out to have a similar function to the newspaper puzzle in terms of, of drawing in readers, of inviting readers into a story or issue, and then, and then caching out their curiosity in subsequent long-form material. So, you know, news, a newspaper, like a, especially a small local newspaper um, that has, you know, been particularly hard hit by the economic downturn in the news business and the media changes in the news business doesn't necessarily uh, have cartoons anymore, edit, local editorial cartoons. And the reason for that is that uh, one way to reduce costs is to tr just eliminate these seemingly extraneous jobs or costs. Um, and, you know, regular columnists have faced... Uh, some of that cut, but the local editorial cartoonist has been almost completely obliterated uh, by changes in the news marketplace because it just doesn't seem like it's, it's valuable. Wouldn't you rather have someone covering the legislature than doing these local cartoons? But we found that editorials and cartoons actually are more important than that. They have a track record in drawing readers in, particularly to local issues that they may have otherwise overlooked. Uh, and this is important when you have a local cartoonist rather than a syndicated national one. So again, like the crossword, the comics, the sports page, when the paper news was predominant, readers would enter the news at these kind of softer entry points, these softer locales. You know, and, um, and from there, they would then kind of take in local national reporting as they, as they page through the paper after experiencing the puzzles or the funnies. And, and one of the things just, just visually that the cartoon and the crossword and the comics do is they break up the text and you can give your eye a place to go as you're moving through this uh, this, this print experience. Now with the move to online distribution, local newspapers haven't tr even tried to reinvent these forums for the digital age. Um, and, you know, so if content like the editorial cartoon is, is meant as a kind of hidden entryway into news, particularly into local news, then when you remove that entrance, you also you also turn away readers, at least to some extent. You're kind of taking the door off the room and they can't get in as easily. And this is a conclusion that differs pretty substantially from the common opinion about where the problems with local news lie. And those opinions generally conclude that you know, it's, a, it's an effect of the decline of mass media in favor of the internet or you know, the cons consolidation of the business. And all of that is true, uh, but the, there are structures within the news media itself that may be accelerating or even, even catalyzing those shifts. And I, and I think the cartoon is one. Now, looking at this problem from a different angle, there's another problem with the creation of news games, and this really affects every genre of news games, but, but current event games in particular. It's just very difficult to make a game if you're, a, if you're anybody, right? But if you're a journalist and you're not trained as a computer programmer and also as a game designer, 
um, it's hard to make a game. It's hard to make a, a game that works, let alone an effective one. So even, even though we have trends like the rise of the, the computational journalist, which is an approach that's gaining uh, some mind share, but I think is being fairly narrowly interpreted uh, as, a, as a tool for data mining, um, even the computationally proficient journalist wouldn't necessarily be able to create a game quickly enough such that it could, it could be described as a current event game, that it would say something meaningful about a current event. There are lots of examples of really bad games made quickly. So the tabloid games that I showed you, some are created in less than 24 hours. Uh, but when we were working on this genre at the studio, we found that you know, 10 days, two weeks, a week to 10 days was about as, as, as little time as we needed to turn um, an idea into something that was complex and synthetic enough that it, that it, was, worth, it was worth experiencing. We have tools uh, for making game development easier. Uh, game Maker, Flash Game Engines, lots of stuff is available now. But these tools uh, still assume an approach to game development that, that is particular to game development, that doesn't take into account uh, a different application, a more purposeful application, like the journalistic application of games. These are tools that ask the creator to work at the mechanical level at all times, rather than at the ideational level. So when you're, when you're making a game in Game Maker, you're thinking about how it behaves and what's on the screen and how it works rather than what it's about. And unlike photography or unlike, unlike video, we don't have a, a, like a camera for games. We don't have a box that we can point at the world and then like a game spits out the other end. Um, and even unlike writing, you know, writing isn't something we have that for either. Um, but writing is a literacy that people generally have, at least at some level. And game development is not, not by any means a standard literacy. So you can't like scrawl something out on paper. There's no equivalent like you know, a sketchbook or a, or a notebook for games where you kind, of, you kind of put ideas down very quickly and then try to refine them later. So you know, in response to those two factors, um, my lab at Georgia Tech, in, in collaboration with um, Michael Matias's uh, lab um, at UC Santa Cruz, we got together and we, thought we, had, we developed an approach to this problem and we were we were lucky enough to get one of these Night News Challenge grants in 2010 to create an authoring tool for uh, cartoon-style current event games. And these, these would particularly be used on local newspaper or even broadcast websites. And the idea was that they would help um, journalists, editors, whomever, construct games that draw communities to the local paper and, and inspire them to kind of come back, give them that entry point, that soft landing that would get them into the news every day. The idea was that uh, a journalist would sort of indicate the desired subject or relationship within a particular topic of the news, and then and the, they would describe that to our system at the, at the ideational level. And the system would then produce, via some fancy artificial intelligence system that we would invent, uh, a simple playable current event game. And it would do that by reasoning about game design in connection with the ideas that the author was presenting to the system uh, uh, as a starting point. And these games would be like skinnable, so you could, you could change the visual appearance. They, you know, they could look like, like traditional editorial cartoons, or they could look like anything you wanted them to. They wouldn't, they wouldn't all look the same. And they wouldn't all behave the same because we would be generating gameplay, so you wouldn't get like breakout over and over again, because that would be boring. You don't want to play break, breakout every day. Uh, the authorship problem proved like maybe one of the most challenging things. And what we finally uh, decided to do was to use an authoring model based on concept mapping. Uh, this is, turns out, like a relatively common um, technique for diagramming the relationships among concepts. It's, a, it's just a graphical approach to organizing and representing knowledge. Some people use it for outlining or for brainstorming. 
Um, and and we, we found that uh, a number of journalists were already familiar with this, uh, with this approach. So we took this idea of like a, a, a concept map based, based authoring model, a game generation system, and then uh, the simple uh, kind of off the cuff behavior of a, of a cartoon, of, a, of an editorial cartoon. And, and what this buys us is, is that the, the barrier to interestingness is very low. So when you, when you look at the, just a print cartoon, it's, it's just a moment. It's a momentary thing. It's like, ah, you know, and that's it. And you kind of go, you kind of chuckle, and that's the whole experience. And, 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 but you may reflect on it later, and it kind of gets you, gets you into that portion um, of the paper. Okay, so I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you something, we hope. Now you are seeing what I'm seeing. Okay. This is um, still in development. Um, Knight doesn't know that I'm showing it off, but it's going to look a lot better and work a lot better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so um, yeah, so the idea is that you know you would you would kind of create these um, these concept maps, uh, and we made this little editor for it, so we could do something like um, let's say police attack. Forgive the grammatical problems, but there's a there's a bug in the system that requires these verbs to be in a certain tense and, okay, let's do like this. Occupy Wall Street. Um, and we'll say that Occupy Wall Street makes protests. Okay, so this is the authoring experience that we want. Um, and then because the gameplay is being generated, so we, we, we disassembled a bunch of simple arcade style classic games into these little like game atoms. Um, and then we, we, I'll show you how some of this works at a technical level, but we've made it such that verbs in this system correspond with possible configurations of gameplay. Um, and then theoretically, I can, um, I can generate one of these games here. And then I don't, I, I don't ever know what's going to happen um, when I, okay, so what I'm doing, what am I doing here? I'm, uh, oh, I'm the police, I think, moving around trying to collect these protests. But, you know, like this may be totally incoherent, and that's okay, because I can just get another one. Um, like very quickly. Okay, so I'm Occupy Wall Street, um, and I'm, tr I'm making protests, you know, which you can see appearing. I, I'm trying to avoid the police. Okay, that's good enough. Let's get another one. Um, yeah, that one, uh, I don't know what's going on. We'll just get another one. Um, oh, no. Give me one that, this is what happens when you, when you show beta stuff. We can do, it, we can do another concept map. Um, Let's see, politician. Um, uh, let's see, what do we want to do? Uh, uh, we'll, we'll go back to our, our original one, right? police. Um, what did I say? Attacks. And I could um, I could do anything here. It doesn't have to be about um, it doesn't have to be about um, news even, which which is like an interesting you know possibility space to consider. Okay, so now I'm the police. Presumably, I'm trying to um, trying to extract um, the protesters from the game. Yeah. What can I do? Not quite working. Sometimes I get like really excellent uh, versions of this, and sometimes I don't. Okay, here we go. Yeah. So I, I, I want to put these protests down in a place where 
the police are unlikely to be able to um, squelch them. <laughs> it's, it's weird stuff, right? And um, one of the things about this, this approach to authoring is that um, it's, like, it's more like puppeteering than like development and that I'm not, I'm not necessarily making the end product and kind of giving, the, giving it these clues. Now, if, if um, let me pull up another window here. Um, just to give you a sense of what this might look like at a more, like a more skinned level and a more complete um, game. There's, the, there's this, uh, this story that we, uh, we've been using as a testbed, which is the, the, the uh, uh, relocation of a Civil War monument in Atlanta called the, the Cyclorama, which is underfunded. Um, and they want to move it. It's next to the zoo. It doesn't really get any attention. At the same time, we have the Civil War sesquicentennial that's about to start. Um, it's very underfunded. And, and, and so, so, you know, this is a topic that's like very, very local. Um, and, and, you know, this is what a game might look like um, if it were skinned. And, and th this actually did come out of the system at one point. We just captured it. So here I'm like the cyclorama trying to get these tourists. But, but the tourists are all over the place, and I have to move my, my cyclorama around. Okay. Um, in this game, the the politician has the capacity, if he, if he cho chooses, to, um, to relocate it and, and then can slurp up tourists. Um, this is similar. You know, this is some kind of weird magnet thing where like, I can herd tourists or something. I don't know. Okay, so you can see, there's, there's, you can see where we're going, which is... Um, is that back to normal? Okay. Um, which is really an attempt to create uh, a system that you can use very, very, very quickly and not have to have any skill whatsoever to use, and that, that generally produces uh, terrible results that you can turn into interesting results by running it really quickly. Uh, I'll give you a, a, are we interested in the technical operation of the system? Is anybody, anybody keen on that? The, 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 the way that it works is that we take the concept map and we turn it into this list of verb predicates, um, and we have a library of these, these bundles of verb predicates that correspond with game mechanics. So this is like one interpretation of that verb attacks. Uh, and we've authored all of these in this weird XML format that we can make as many or as few of them as we want. Other people can author them. And there are these, these kind of um, verb mechanics that co correspond at an atomic level with a number of different uh, uh, gameplay experiences, which we then recombine to create these sort of weird you know, Frankenstein monster games. And, and then soon what we're going to be doing, this has actually already been implemented, but I don't have, a, I don't have the current build. Instead of picking these randomly, which is what we're doing now, and that's why you, have, you often get these very broken games, um, we'll look at the combinations of mechanics, of verb mechanics, and score them against this library of what we're calling recipes. And those re recipes are like sort of this abstract description of coherent gameplay, such that you could know that, well, if I have this thing at one end of the screen, then maybe I want to put that other thing on the opposite side of the screen. Um, one of the taglines we've been using to describe this project is, is this one, Simple Games Fast. And, and I guess um, the original quip in the lab that we were using was, was something like shitty games fast, which is maybe more honest but uh, l less acceptable to put on, on the website. Uh, but it's also not really an insult. Uh, like speed and crappiness kind of go hand in hand. Uh, and it's what makes a notebook or a camera powerful that you can, you can very, very rapidly produce terrible work. And then you, over time, you can kind of get a sense of what it means to create better versions of that kind of work and turn it into, into good work through deliberate practice or, or even just through accident. Okay, so moving on. I, I think this cartoonist project is clever and original and, and, and promising, and there's some really interesting first-order design and technology problems at work in it, and it has applications outside of journalism and, and, and so forth. But th there's a challenge in, it, in adapting the editorial cartoon for online news. Um, 
And, and you know, it makes me wonder what, what the opposite would be. Like, wh wh if I play devil's advocate with myself, what assumptions do we make in pursuing that goal in the first place? Well, for one, it's the, the idea that the newspaper, um, whether it's online or off, is a sort of acceptable and, and desirable ground for the future of news. That's one assumption we're making. But whether that's true or not requires us to take a step back. Uh, I mean, what is a computer for anyway, right? You know, by the textbook definition, a computer is a machine that stores and processes data given programmatic instructions. But we tend to see computers more like this uh, than like this today, right? Computers are these, these social tools. They're these network appliances. And, and generally, they've become distribution terminals for digitized material. And most of the time, that material is not programmed data processing apparatuses. It's sort of digital versions of traditional media, writing, images, film, and so forth. And that's particularly true in news. Online news or digital news or whatever you'd like to call it just means traditional news, like articles and images and audio and video, that have been delivered over the internet instead of in print or broadcast form. And in that respect, digital journalism shares much in common with print and broadcast journalism, actually. You know, it's, it's, it's more committed to the, to the particularities of that, that mode of operation than it is in finding a different or better method for helping citizens make decisions. In, a, in this book, Nonstop Inertia, which is a, a book about the feeling of, of going nowhere in the, in the precarious labor market of, of contemporary society, Ivor Southwood offers this critique of contemporary news, which I'll read to you. Perhaps the most vivid dramatization of placeless anxiety is 24-hour news, with its pumping and draining of personalities and monitoring of vital signs, digital news depicts the world as a continuously unfolding narrative of non-places upon which the multi-platform precarity of everyday life is enacted and its blurred perspective reproduced. There is now no time to assess a news story from a critical distance because the reporter has to comment on the event as it happens, or even before it happens, and improvise to fill the space using speculation or viewer-supplied material if necessary. This is the media equivalent of looking busy. Or this is the Onion's version of the same critique in, in Onion style, right? So, you know, there, there's no real notion of time that's hard-coded into the web like there is with print and broadcast news. Uh, or or as, as Matt Thompson has put it, journalism can exist outside of time, but it chooses not to. Instead, we, we assume that the production of news has to exist on a regular scale, and we make that assumption because we've inherited it from traditional media, from, from the fixed time cycles of traditional media. So if the, if the figure of the cartoonist represents the kind of futurism that understands progress as an adaptation of the past, then what might its shadow side look like? And, and this leads us to the whaler, finally. So in the 18th and 19th centuries, boiled oil extracted from the blubber of whales was a primary fuel for much of the Western world. Whaling was a giant industry. It was the fifth largest industry in the U.S., and people made tons of money doing it, just like in oil and just like in newspapers at one time. But by the mid-19th century, whaling was nearing its close. Uh, partly that was because sperm whales were becoming scarce, um, but it, also the petroleum industry had been starting up. Um, and by 1860, it was completely passe. The, the Union Army was like sinking whaling ships in Charleston Harbor as barriers rather than using them for energy sources. Uh, Eric Dolan, who's a historian of this, of this era, uh, has extracted a, a lesson from the period. He says, one era's irreplaceable energy source could be the next one's relic. And in reference to today's debate about peak oil, uh, some people refer back to this period uh, of whaling and call it peak whale. 
Now, Dolan is talking about the future of energy. He's saying, you know, big oil can be replaced. It's ripe to be replaced with something newer and something cleaner. But we can take this same metaphor and apply it to the news business or, or any other media business, too. What you think you can't live with today, Dolan says, tomorrow can become just a memory. That's what happened with whale oil. And eventually, it's going to happen to oil. But you don't just turn off one switch and flip on a new one. It's the product of a long, wrenching process. We're going through something similar today with journalism, but we don't have the equivalent of, of fossil fuel that emerged by accident like it did in the 1840s. And I don't think the internet is, is the kerosene to journalism's uh, you know, whale oil. Um, we've instead been bootstrapping traditional journalistic media onto the computer. And that works well in some contexts, but it, it might also be a kind of mixed metaphor, like drilling for whale. So in Marshall McLuhan's terms, the, the combination of print and image and filmic media matter along with the regularity of the news cycle acts as ground. It's that silent context in which the news media operate. And uh, we don't see it. It's the situation that gives rise to the environment that we don't see. In this uh, tragically underread book, Laws of Media, late McLuhan, um, Marshall McLuhan, along with his son Eric, proposed the, the most general version uh, and kind of more, most condensed version of their, of their media ecology. Um, they claim that they found this, this set of rules that describe every product of human effort. Uh, and those are these four, that every medium enhances, retrieves, reverses, and obsolesces some set of other media. And that creates the kind of context in which every medium exists. Uh, they call this the tetrad. It's a tool that allows the, the media ecologist to describe a medium as a whole, such that one observation doesn't take precedent over another. Uh, or as, as McLuhan puts it, all four aspects are inherent in each artifact from the start. They're complementary, they're simultaneous. You can't extract one from the system without changing that media ecology. So the usual method of doing this tetratic analysis, you, you drop in a medium and then, and then around the structure you do this work of trying to figure out how it's affecting the media ecosystem. But th this analysis should remind us that there are not only relationships of conflict between media, but actually conflict between the very idea of supporting those different modes of media. Um, to endorse one medium may imply or require the obsolescence of another, or, or, or on the flip side, the, um, the enhancement of one media may, may en entail the retrieval of another. So despite the frequent claims that uh, traditional broadcast media have been fully disrupted by online media, their commonalities, the, you know, the other media they contain, like writing and moving images, the timescale in which they operate, may actually imply a continuation rather than a, a disruption. So a, you know, a project like Cartoonist, which attempts to move news games forward by coupling games to online news, uh, may or may not be servicing a broader change in, in the news media ecology. Uh, in 1993, uh, Althusser's memoir was published in English under the title, The Future Lasts Forever. And there are some scholars of, of French critical theory who lament this translation as prurient and driven by marketing concerns rather than fidelity. But I, I love this translation because it suggests a kind of irrecuperability that de Gaulle's sentiment can't fully muster. And, and it probably didn't even occur to Althusser. It's not just that a given future may flip the poles of its favor in, in the long run. Rather, every future is, is infinite and sort of separate, like wholly separate from every other. Every future involves the, the death of an entire timeline. 
So you know, what would happen if we tried to see futurity more discreetly like this, you know, and, and, and more like an ecosystem? How would we even go about it? Well, one method is to take the tetrad and sort of turn it inside out, to imagine a particular media ecosystem, and to fashion media interventions that might bring about that situation, to fill in the middle, rather than to analyze a, a known object and fill in the edges. And the consequences of this view are surprising because we, we begin to realize, for example, that like speech and writing and images may be incompatible or may have to be obsolesced in favor of bringing about a more systemic or, or procedural view of, of local and global events. But in either case, this sort of incremental change of, of like nextist futurism or like the sort of wait for it and maybe it will get better change of long view futurism um, aren't, aren't sufficient to explain the weirdness of the decisions that we make when we intervene in media systems. In fact, the, the reality of those interventions are more like string theory than they are like social constructionism or technological determinism. A at any moment, there are entire universes of possibility that open up and close down. And when we pursue a particular medium, it reaches a tipping point in some cases. And then beyond that, we're, we're doing more than exerting glancing blows at the media ecosystem. We're sort of splitting the timeline of human culture and society irreversibly. So you know, in that light, uh, there's an aspect of, of McLuhanian media theory that goes underserved, not just as a kind of prediction or documentation or as a kind of history, but as a sort of historical fiction or, or maybe as a kind of quantum fiction. Like, What would everything be like had one thing been different? At the start of his memoir, Althusser writes, I shall describe what happened between two zones of darkness, the unknown one from which I was emerging and the one I was about to enter. Progress, Althusser reflects, is not made from knowledge, but, but from darkness. And, and this is what McLuhan calls ground, the thing that we don't see until we've altered it in ways we couldn't have planned. We, we never have a complete view of what we're doing. Or the title of Marshall McLuhan and Quentin Fiore's pop media art book, The Medium is the Massage. Uh, media massage the human sensorium, and yet we too, as media creators and critics, massage the media ecosystem via the media that we invent and use and critique. Now, this title, The Medium is the Massage, was supposedly a, a printer's error. It was, it was meant to just read The Medium is the Message. But reportedly, if you believe the McLuhan estate, uh, McLuhan decided to keep the wrong title. He was overjoyed by it. It got his point across. A massage, that is, can be a happy accident. That's sort of the McLuhan side of the coin. Um, but Althusser's flip side tells us that when it comes to massages, we can kill without realizing that we're killing. So are we massaging or strangling the media ecosystem, or both, or neither? I don't know. But when we advocate for news games, or for Twitter, or for Wikipedia, or for whatever else that we advocate for, I know that we think that we're all masseurs and masseuses and not murderers. I, I, I believe that in my heart. That's the way I go about my day-to-day -day basis. Um, but then as, as, as you feel your cold thumbs press into the soft jugular notch of the media ecosystem, are you really sure? After all, the future lasts a long time. Thanks very much for your attention. Thanks, Ian. So um, time for questions. I have to use the mic because this is all being recorded. So. Um, so I guess I have 
an observation that will then lead into a question. Um, so this is just, I guess, a note that I thought was interesting as I was thinking about your talk. Um, I hadn't ever thought about it in these terms before, but I'm a 19th century scholar, and I work on what you could call is what was the future of news at the end of the 19th century. Right. And I think that, so my observation is about imagination, and then my question is going to be about what I think is another possible assumption in what you were describing. So the observation side of this is that one of the things that I look at is um, that I think was changing at the end of the 19th century as there was a similar moment of media change and you had a lot of different genres that were coming up and arising and no one of them probably imagined that it was killing media as it was known then, right. but you know, it, it led to a different paradigm. Um, but before the journalistic profession in the United States began to define an idea of objectivity, there was this idea that uh, part of what a journalist was doing and part of how a writer, a reporter could have credibility was from his or her own imagination, usually his, um, and that there was these, this sort of level of personal impression that was being brought to the story right. and that was part of how it was defining mm -hmm. news. Interesting because that means then, you know, there's this element of entertainment that was right, being brought right, to Right, right, which goes well. back to the penny presses right. too and everything, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, so one thing that's interesting about what you're describing here is that it's bringing imagination into news in a way that perhaps hasn't been acceptable uh, in uh, according to 20th century right. journalistic standards. Right. But this time, if, if we're talking about games and play, that imagination is in the hands of the user or the reader or however we want to call that person. So it's this sort of bringing back an element of news in the way I think about it in the 19th century, but placing it in a different a different spot in, yeah. in, in the in the creation reception. Right, right, right. So then my question for you is just, you know, building on this observation, um, you know, it seems to me like part of what you're doing here is redefining, uh, redefining news itself. And something that I heard you say multiple times was, you know, journalism should, or what we're doing is helping, helping citizens make decisions. And it seems to me that when I think about the history of news, I can see journalism being defined as entertainment. I can mm -hmm. see that still existing in the 20th century, but also having an information sort of wrapper around it. And you could debate how much that was right. really the case. Right. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about helping citizens make decisions. I th I th and yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that's still, I think that corresponds fairly well with what we would call 20th century journalistic values still, right? Like if you talk to journalists about what they're doing and you say, well, you're, are you helping make, are you helping citizens make decisions uh, in, a, in a democratic context? Um, they probably wouldn't reject that definition of journalism. And it's connected somewhat to other values, you know, that have to do with not necessarily objectivity, um, but the idea of, of being deliberate and forthright and, you know, exposing your, your biases or your, or your connections to, uh, uh, to particular organizational conflicts and that sort of thing. Um, and so one of the things that this research has been required to do in some way is to speak to and align itself with the way that certain kinds of 20th century journalism sees itself. And, and part of that, I don't know, we're recording this, I probably shouldn't talk about it. Part of that is that um, I get my money from Knight to do this, right? And Knight has, I, and I actually like, I, I'm very, you know, feel very, very much in line with their idea of what journalism ought to be doing. Um, but if we are shifting 
the, the, the definition of what news is or what journalism is, which, as you point out, has happened several different times, um, then what are we shifting out of and what are we shifting into and are we, are we aware that that is, that is taking place? So another thing that's happening today is, that, is the, the trend that would essentially replace whatever the news was in the 20th century with whatever Silicon Valley makes for us. So, you know, Twitter is good for news because, well, it, it happens to be used. And it doesn't really matter what it's doing so insofar as, you know, we, we're judging it against criteria for newsmaking. What's more important is that if we don't do something with it, then we're going to lose. We're going to lose out. These institutions um, are going to die and they're going to be replaced by these others. Um, and we've certainly seen a lot of alignment uh, between those worlds. Now, I, don't have, I have a lot of opinions about that alignment, none of which are really relevant to the present conversation, other than to say that um, they're not being evaluated in, in, as potential conflicts. There's the assumption that we can sort of just take like 20th century news, we can take some, like, you know, some Twitter and kind of you know, mash them up, and, and what we get out of them is something that is um, what was meant to happen next, right? Rather than, and, and at the same time, people talk about killing the mass media as they're talking about, we're just kind of doing the next evolution of reporting or of, uh, or of information gathering. Um, so, you know, I, th I think that the, the we're making a, just a whole mess of assumptions, and I don't have the time all the time to ask questions about them. So this talk is partly about finding the time to ask those questions and to build these sort of regimes of planning through which we would ask, well, what kind of, if we want to, we want to construct a media ecosystem, what would that look like? And it's not going to be optimal or ideal, um, but it will be um, a deliberate exercise to go through it. But then at the same time, I've got to make software, and I've got to feed graduate students, and, you know, and I've got to do all these things that we have to do. Or I've got to you know, make news, if I'm, if I'm thinking about this from a newsroom perspective. So in what, you know, who is going to do that work of, of sort of situating and contextualizing this? We don't have um, a tradition of research in journalism. So J schools are basically vocational. So it hasn't been happening there. And I, I just can't help but wonder how the world would be different if the development of journalism schools had been less professionalized and had been more open to, to research. Um, but maybe now that's what we're starting to, to inject into them. But it's not going to happen inside those organizations. Or that's the role for media studies. What's or that? a role for media studies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Thanks. Very, very interesting talk. Um, um, it's sort of an arresting idea to say, well, I'm going to play the news. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Uh, and I'm curious because uh, I find it, uh, at first it seems, you know, very reduced and so forth, but then you begin to realize that there's some new element uh, under development here. And I'm curious uh, what you see as a potential for this area of uh, uh, play with uh, elements from news and so forth. What sorts of new insights and understandings can we gain from it? And also uh, related to this question is uh, what kind of audiences do you right. imagine? Okay. Um, so my, my personal aesthetic preference when it comes to these, these, these news games genres um, is the systemic, the more systemic games. You know, games that um, you, could, you could put them under the documentary category if you'd like to. But games that are trying to give us a picture of how the underbelly works how, how systems operate. One of the observations we make in the book is that journalists actually do this as part of their work naturally. Like they'll you know, go in and say, okay, what's going on? You know, what, what's sort of the unseen logic of this social system or this political system? And then, then, then they write it up though. 
uh, and, and deliver the sort of summary of, of it to us. What if instead we stopped at that level of, of information gathering and said, well, this is sort of how it feels. This is, this is the mire that we're in. And feeling um, comfortable, beginning to feel at one with that uncertainty and that, that, that admiredness, that sense that everything is, is this, this, this kind of big hulking mess of rusty gears grinding against one another, and that is just how the world works, and, and that we don't want answers, simple answers, and even answers that we can get in a few minutes with a little news game. What we want is to feel comfortable with the fact that, we, that, that answers elude us. Th that's, that's sort of where my heart lies. Um, but think about everything that has to come to pass for that to even be possible. And this is sort of where this media ecosystem problem exists. Um, wouldn't it be easier just to read the headline, you know, rather than to go to the trouble of, oh, let me look at all of the different factors at work in the global economy, you know? Uh, and so as long as we always have the headline or the, or the little ticker at the bottom of the television screen, or even Jon Stewart sending up the ticker at the bottom of the screen, then I don't know that we can get to that sort of murky mess. Um, but that's, that's, that's the kind of way I see the issue. That's, that's where my heart lies when it comes to making stuff like this. As far as the audience goes, um, the audience for, I mean, we could talk about the audience for games in general, and I, you know, we, could, we could talk about its tendency to address uh, uh, adolescent boys, or we could talk about how there are a new set of online games that uh, women, ages, whatever, new whatever, seem to be playing. And all of those things are kind of true, um, but I think the more interesting question is who engages with the news? or who engages with news media. Well, everybody does in their own way. And so rather than foregrounding games and saying, you know, games are going to be the primary term, and who plays games? Kids play games. Games are great. Uh, we're going to use games for education, right? Rather than that, say, OK, well, like games are this medium that we have among, uh, among others. News is a, is a goal. We, we want to support the communication of ideas, the making of decisions, what have you. Um, let's not worry so much about who's playing the games, but ask into, into what context could we bring them. Um, and a journalistic context is a sort of content domain or a you know, disciplinary context. And another one has to do with, with audiences, not just people, but moments in time. So this cartoonist thing is not just about who's playing those games, like, you know, oh, uh, casual games are played by a very broad audience, which is true, but also about the way that you encounter it. And if you encounter something that is um, only asking for five seconds of your time um, every day and that you see differently every day, um, then that's the kind of audience question that I'm interested in asking about these games. Oh, you know, what's the sort of set of parameters uh, in terms of their, their features and their assumptions you know, conventionally and what they're relying on from earlier forms of games, but also how are they presented, in what contexts, and to whom. And we may have to design all of that stuff very deliberately. Uh, so you know, one of my, my kind of current hobby horses about games is that those of us working in games, our goal, our primary goal, to, is to take games and make them ordinary, to make them uninteresting, so that we don't have to talk about how we could use games for things like journalism anymore, and that be the interesting fe you know, feature of our conversation, but rather talk about the nitty-gritty of a particular approach, a particular method. And you know, when you think about the way we talk about the moving image, we're no longer saying, wow, like you can use this, you can use film to talk about current events. Uh, yeah, OK, I mean, sure, I guess. But rather, we might talk about you know, particular approaches to um, uh, newsmaking or to documentary film or what have you. So we, we have to get there. In order to get there, 
we've got we've to sort of release ourselves from the burden of thinking that there's something so special about games, like they address a particular audience or they leave a particular audience out or what have you, and instead say, if I wanted to accomplish X, you know, how would I go about it with medium Y? And in my case, that medium is usually games. So, um, is this, is it's, this it's just for the recording, yeah. So, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts about uh, who gets to participate in production, right? So, um, I just, last year I worked on this project with, with Ernie Wilson, um, where we looked at 30 years of data on ownership and employment in the traditional news industries. Well, we, we looked at print journalism, commercial TV, commercial radio, public TV, public radio, and this category called internet publishers, which yeah. we got data from the, uh, the economic census, Small Business Owners Bureau. And the, the, you know, the tweet version of what we found is that uh, at the current rate of long-term slow increase of uh, minority employment and ownership in these various sectors, the news industry will absolutely never look like the general demographics of the American population. So we'll never reach parity in terms of people of color, African Americans, Latinos, Asian Americans, and so on, um, actually being represented in the newsroom um, in proportions that look like the, mm -hmm. the American public. Right. And ownership looks much, much, much worse. Right. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, you, you've, you've talked about the ways that we can uh, develop different possible futures for an information ecosystem, given that the current structural inequalities based on mm -hmm. historical inequality continue to reproduce themselves across every new communication tool that emerges. Um, how, how do you imagine that playing out in, uh, in games, both the games industry more broadly, but also in terms of these, these possible alternative yeah, yeah. futures and we've got of this, news games? We've got this same massive problem with, with uh, inequality in the production of just commercial entertainment games. Right. It's not like it's any better in games to start with. In fact, it's probably worse, I would guess. Um, I mean, I, I don't have an answer for this question other than to say it's an uh, it's a, it's a important question. Uh, but if I kind of reflect on what, what sort of features or criteria might be interesting to consider, the argument, you know, you could muster your argument in, 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 in supporting the premise we should destroy the traditional news industry because it's only reproducing inequality. And then the assumption would be like somehow magically, you know, this sort of sort of uh, uh, bottom-up uh, experience of of creating information content for citizens will take its place. You know, that's a kind of utopic view, right? And a lot of people make this mistake. I think um, we could try to look at creating infrastructures, you know, social and uh, organizational infrastructures that are generic, that might um, address the, the 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 problem by which those inequalities are reproduced in the way that you're describing. Now that's itself, I don't know, like, right? Like, what do we do? Um, but those are, those are the sorts of ways that we would have to approach answers to these questions. Um, so we have to take it seriously as a sort of systemic failing rather than it has something particular to do with news or with games or with a, you know, a certain class of, of individual or business person or what have you. Um, I, think the, I think the problem, I mean, you know, we're, we're trying to roll this thing out with this, this cartoonist system with, with news organizations in part, but then we, you know, we're open source the whole thing, and the the wonderful story is that anybody can use it. But why would anybody use it? Like, what would they do with it? Especially since the whole gimmick has to do with 
a very particular set of assumptions about the way the traditional news industry works. What would it mean if instead we invented a system that addressed some of the problems that you're describing? I don't know what that system would look like, but that would be the kind of attitude we'd have to take. And you know, is that attitude aligned with, for example, grant-making organizations that, that allow us to do this sort of work? Because it's, it's not going to come from venture capital or you know, it's, not gonna, it's probably not going to arise just out of the ether on its own. Um, this is the kind of thing that has to be situated. Um, and if we, if, we, you know, if we could create those kind of infrastructures, maybe we could, maybe we could address those questions uh, more directly. I, I regret not having a good answer, but I don't think there is a good answer uh, other than that it will involve a lot of hard work. Um, so you had a bunch of different genres yeah. of, of news games up there. And I was wondering um, if, if, if they are relative. So if, are there some where you feel like you're more back at the nape and others where you feel like yeah, you're yeah, venturing yeah. more around the, to the notch? Maybe. Maybe. That's an interesting question. Um, I mean, and I don't think that they're exclusive either, of course. You, know, that you, sort of, you can sort of sprinkle them in like spice. There's something about, um, well, I mean, you can look at some of them that are very directly correlated with existing, the, you know, the idea of a documentary game makes all sorts of assumptions about the production of actuality that may or may not be true, popular, accepted in, in filmmaking or even in investigative reporting. Um, and so those are, those are more clearly reproducing existing media approaches. This, this puzzles thing, just, I'm just obsessed with how weird it is, though. And that, that idea of, um, of ritual, of like doing something just because you do it every day and it makes you feel good to have something that you can rely on. I mean, that feels closer to the nape, maybe, to me. Not, not because of the crossword, right? I mean, Sudoku won't save the news or something. That's not what I'm saying. But, um, but it's a kind of approach that, that feels uh, different from the obsessive repetition, which is the way that we use online media. So when I go to you know, my news website or go to Twitter or Facebook, wherever I go, it's not ritualized, really. I mean, it's obsessive and compulsive. So, so maybe for that reason, I feel that it has more promise. Yeah. And, and you know, there, there are others that, that I think have, have also interesting promise. But it's, it's this weird, it's a weird lesson from puzzles that I keep coming back to as sort of the most progressive idea that maybe we've suggested. Um, if we uh, shift uh, the journalistic context into other contexts, uh, with the principles that makes um, the cartoonist work for journalists, work for the other civic agents, civic subjects. Right. In other words, I'm, I'm wondering about what distinguishes the, um, the, um, the news games yeah. from other kinds of uh, social games, civic oriented, civic social games, in, in your own terms, in terms of uh, yeah, procedural yeah. Re uh, rhetoric. Um, we've, you know, so one of the things that's occurred to us as we've been working on this is that there's nothing intrinsically n journalistic about this system. You can use it for anything. I mean, we're making this set of visual elements that, that are sort of like stock visuals that you'll be able to use, so you won't have to make your own art assets, or you can upload, upload files. And, and those have a very particular kind of editorial cartoon look and feel to them, and that may tie the output to, to the news, at least, at least in its appearance a bit more. But you could put anything in there. In fact, I was, doing, I was doing a talk recently in which, um, uh, in the introduction, someone talked about their dog and like, food falling under the table. And we made the game you know, in just a minute um, with the system. And you could have a little dog you know, feeding game or whatever, which has nothing to do with anything. It's just a little, little toy. 
So you know, one answer to this question, the one that I've, that I've come to thus far, is that we're, we're never going to get that camera. There's just something about games that's incompatible. You don't point it at the world and get, and get a, a reflection of the world back. But by producing this little machine that makes it possible to very quickly and, and with, with rapid feedback experience some of the logic that games uh, inflict upon ideas, then maybe we can ratchet up um, our own literacy for the medium in general. And that would be the general lesson I would suggest as it relates to you know, something like um, uh, the advancement of games in a broader arena than just news, or even than just in sort of civic purposes. Uh, at the same time, I suspect I know exactly what people are going to use this for when we unleash it on the world. And, I, and I, I, I don't know that I'm looking forward to seeing all of those you know, strange, perverse games. But it will, it will, do, it will have, that have that same effect, maybe more so than the games that we produce with news organizations. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Hi, Fox. I have a question which is just about the simple games fast idea, just to uh, push a little, a little further there. And so you mentioned earlier this idea that games uh, we should treat like another, like every other uh, medium, right? right. So, and the, the flip side of it with the simple games fast idea is if you're making something for at least somewhat broad consumption, uh, then uh, we don't exactly make, a sort of, uh, say, video. The Porta Pack didn't allow you know, video for uh, broad consumption in the same sense without the kind of expertise of creation or, or right, right, in, right. in literary works. Yeah, so sure. there's a, the same kind yeah, of simple, issue. Simple books right? fast. Right. Yeah, and, and so really, yeah. the, the, you could say, for example, an easier problem would be the issue of branding games. So even 16-bit games or, or earlier games, branding E.T. branded game or, right. or Avatar branded game. And even there, we know that the reviews of those games uh, well, are typically abysmal. So we could imagine a very advanced version of your system could do something like branding uh, uh, games. Uh, and, uh, and so we end up with games like uh, the infamous, uh, you, know, you could contrast Street Fighter 2, right, the epitome of 16-bit uh, 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 fighting games to Shaq Fu, right, right. the Shaquille O'Neal game, right. which was a very poorly, in fact, it's yeah. on one of the worst games lists. And you know, I raise this issue just because you could say that in a, in a, a futuristic uh, world, then that would be a kind of uh, celebrated outcome of, of simple games fast uh, system, if yeah. you could even do that. Right. So how could we get there? How could we get to you know, Super Columbine Massacre RPG? And is that even... Well, yeah, and like this, this is sort of also related, like, you know, I'm kind of, there's a, there's a platform play that we're making with this system because it makes a very particular kind of game fast that makes very particular kind of assumptions. Um, and one of the things you can do if you open up the hood is you can make a you can make your own verb mechanics and you can couple those to your own interpretations of the, all of that is, I mean it's not exposed it's actually quite a bit of a mess but it's there and, and so you could go in and work at that level, and that would be a very different level than we're used to working at now when we di when we deep dive into expertise. So one of the things that happens is there's this there's this kind of um, um, this like uh, 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 expansion of different modes of creativity that take place when we invent new modes of making something. Um, and you see this in everything, right? Like little big planet uh, experts who go into little big planet, which is you know, not really meant to be used for much of anything, and make like you know, working analog computers. Um, and you, know, you could look at that and say, well, this is sort of a waste of, of time. Maybe, maybe you should be doing something else. But it also is an example of a, you know, a very particular bounded kind of creativity. Uh, and, and we tend to look at those, those kinds of unique platform uh, constrained uh, creative systems um, as having some kind of value just by virtue of the fact 
that they facilitate creativity, which may or may not be a mistake, uh, but is, is surely sometimes a mistake, right? We don't exactly know when it is. So we are opening a kind of can of worms with stuff like this, in which we're saying, well, this road that we're about to go down, like, this is okay, we can go down here, it's safe. And I don't think we have any idea whether it's safe or not. And, and you know, some of, you've described some of the consequences, and I can imagine much worse consequences, too. Um, and, and then we're in, you know, a kind of media ethics domain in which we ask, you know, like, do we just take the most utilitarian approach possible and say, well, if we, you know, if we, uh, if we, uh, if we affect, you know, N plus one percent improvement in the local news uh, system, then, you know, it's worth uh, opening the door on this sort of crazy creativity that may also be a total waste of time and we should be investing that in something else. I don't know. I don't know. But, um, but I worry about it. Hi. So um, I've kind of been uh, thinking about the this this idea of the, using the cartoonist platform to kind of give a, a soft entry point to sort of um, more what we would call hard news content, uh, and and I think that's a really good uh, idea there and a good starting point for the system. Um, but I think it also raises some interesting contrasts in terms of what editorial cartoons can accomplish as editorial cartoons and sort of what games can accomplish as games. Um, and I think the interesting thing about the editorial cartoon is that um, they, they all sort of, well, many of them start with the same, what we would call concept map that, you know, uh, uh, party X did something to party Y. Yep. And no matter what newspaper you open, the editorial yeah. cartoon is going to proceed from that kind of relational construct and that right. verb structure. Right. The actual creativity of the cartoonist comes in with the metaphors they choose to apply to that. You know, is, is it a David and Goliath situation? Is it a schoolyard bully confronting a weakling? Mm -hmm. um, so, so to the extent that the cartoonist system starts off with uh, a given concept map, um, does that limit what, what the output of the system has in terms of uh, editorial statement? Because, you know, it, it, it's kind of, it's generating the representations as gameplay. Well, the, the, the visual representations are entirely up to the author. So you could still do that kind of work. And it, in some cases, it totally changes the meaning. What you're, what's worse is that you're subjected to, um, and we have a lot of tuning to do, you're subjected to our interpretation of the map, of the concept maps. Um, but the idea is that this is a sort of very iterative design process. I mean, there's a version. We didn't see the best versions of this. I, I, they're different every time. I don't even know what I'm going to get. There was one I saw recently that um, the same, the same uh, scenario in which um, uh, I was, um, the, pro I was the, the, the role I was placed in was that of the, the protests themselves. And there were, you know, there were these protesters you know, continually generating protests, which, which were multiplying. And, and eventually, the police were going to we're going to be able to get at some of them just by virtue of the fact that it was going to take up so much space, which is kind of a weird accidental editorial. Like, you know, does the concept map imply that like very wry conclusion? What, what is the conclusion even? It would actually take us quite a bit to tease it out and describe it in, in verbal form. Um, so you know, how do we get to the point where if you have a, either an editorial or a non-editorial goal, that you are able to quickly get to the point where you find something that matches. So our current answer is push the button again. And that's not a bad answer when pushing the button takes a second and you get another game. Um, our longer term answer, which is actually pretty short term, is that we have to, we, we need a better rhetorical representation of these combinations, which, which you've already mostly implemented and just are kind of pasting it together. The other thing is more, um, more verbal range will really help. Um, and we had this whole adverb, adverb system planned that eventually I want to get in there because that's one way of kind of tuning 
the sort of value structures of the results that you get. And I mean, we would, we hopefully we'll, we'll be able to you know, find the means to be able to, to add to the system later and, and get that sort of stuff in. It, the, the, one of the challenges with making work like this is this is like crazy, right? Like nobody, nobody's done this sort of thing. Um, but yet the expectations are very high. Um, and you know, not just the expectations of like my funders, but you know, when, I, when I walk into a newsroom and someone, so I've got this thing, it makes these games, and you know, they've got an idea of what news is, what games are. You know, the fact that I'm able to get something coherent and vaguely playable in a, in a, in a millisecond, I can't really use that as, 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 as that's, that's not meaningful, really. Um, and we need to find a way of making that more meaningful. And, and so far, our, tech, our, our approach to that is uh, uh, willing, willing partners who are willing to spend some time with it and then, and then work on exactly these kinds of problems with us. Uh, so yeah, it's not a silver bullet by any means, but those are some of the ways that we're approaching those, those issues. There's a whole story, by the way, about the name cartoonist and why it's probably going away, which has to do with, uh, well, the fact that the, the cartoonists are, not, are none too thrilled with the idea of um, being computerized. Yeah. So I have one more question. I guess you could call it about the business side of this, building off of some of what you said and some of what you said in right. other comments as well. So it seems like some of what you're proposing is that, I mean, another assumption behind this perhaps is that the future of the, new, of the news industry, especially if we're going to preserve some of the way we know it today or some of the standards that the Knight Foundation is invested in, for instance, right. um, the news industry needs an R&D wing. Yeah. And that, you know, you are that wing. Um, you know, I can think of a few other places in the country that might be that wing. So I just wonder if you could reflect on that a little bit. And particularly, are you thinking about models from other industries? You know, for example, you mentioned, mentioned venture capital. Are you thinking about, you know, uh, looking at, I don't know, medical devices or somewhere, some sort of industry where, where you could see venture capital funding the R&D side of things. Yeah, you know, golly. What, how, how would this work if that's, that's part of what the future yeah, I mean, of news my, needs? My worry about the whole VC system is that it's invested in, a, in a, a very specific idea of progress, which is that anything the market wants is good. Um, and by the way, we want to cash out in five years, right? Um, so I don't know that there, I don't even know that it, we could say that there's a VC R&D world, could we? I mean, there's a, certainly an investment world that, that tries to produce quirky products quickly, um, but not, not with an interest in, and they talk about like, sub, you know, fundamental change and stuff all the time in this platitude, platitudinous way. I don't know, you can tell, what I, you can tell how, how I feel about, about the world of VC, but, but it's only because in relation to something like the news, there seems to be a fundamental incompatibility with, with Silicon Valley style techno-libertarianism and the notion of helping people make decisions in, in their lives, which we are very rarely talking about um, when those worlds collide. Uh, instead, it's like, well, who has the money? Um, but other models of R&D, you know, I think the, um, well, if you think about the early history of the computing industry, for example, um, a tremendous amount of, of, of R&D and really a tremendous amount of just, just off-the-cuff development came from the perspective of having something in mind, having certain, having a set of values. You know, and, and the, the early days of, um, of, of mini and, and microcomputing were really a part of, of the counterculture movements of, of the 1960s and 70s. Um, I mean, very, very strongly connected to them. And then, of course, everybody forgot about, even Steve Jobs forgot about that. Um, you know, so what are those... Where are those, those uh, situations, you know, and do they have the resources or the wherewithal um, to produce something like that kind of value-motivated work? 
Um, I, don't, I don't know. And it's certainly not the same anymore. It's not like we'll throw a bunch of young people in a garage. Because now all the young people want to do is have startups and flip them to Google, which is incompatible with the first observation I made. I, I, I don't think the, um, I mean, is it too late to have real first, you know, like fundamental research in journalism? I don't know. I don't know if it's too late. It would, it would have been a lot better to start that 50 years ago. Um, but if we were to do that, where would the money come from now? You know, now that all of the cash has been bled out of, of the newspaper business. Is it going to come from folks like Knight? Well, maybe in part, but I'm barely, I mean, I'm, we're, we're scraping bottom to get, to get this done with the like, re reasonably generous uh, uh, amount of money that we were able to get from them, along with the fact that they refused to pay uh, institutional overhead, which, of course, Georgia Tech is thrilled with, right? Um, yeah, I, I, and, and what other models are there, right? We have, you know, industrial research. We have um, university research with this kind of tech transfer, you know, methodology. We have, um, uh, like, crazy random stuff that, that sort of emerges from nothing. Um, and then um, we have the, the notion that there are first principles underneath even the first principles research. So, you know, b that may be one answer. Um, investment in extremely huge unsolvable problems, seeming or seemingly unsolvable problems, like at the, at the very fundamental levels, um, you know, astrophysics, um, has resulted in um, ideas that have had application in surprising ways. You know, so we could kind of turn the problem on its head and say the more that we focus on, on, on really big problems, really big questions, then the more likely we are, weirdly, counterintuitively, to actually get useful stuff out of them. Um, that's certainly the most uh, charming answer. I don't know if it's the best one. So, so someone's already characterized a lot of the genres uh, th that, you, that you've talked to us about as kind of being emerging from the existing um, journalistic practice. Right. And one of your answers, and, and, and you said it again, was kind of, well, there are constraints in terms of where you find funding and that there's a notion of journalism that, that one has to address. Sure. Um, and I'd like to just push a little bit push you maybe in a more speculative way like uh, so a lot of what you're able to do is add uh, is to engage more of a participatory edge to what is often read as a sometimes cast in more passive terms although we all know better with the printed page you can sort of through games through the games you've shown us we can engage and interact mm -hmm. and sort of discover rules but if I think of other directions of journalism that, that are maybe not so high profile um, collaborative news networks, things like Slashdot or whatever, where a lot of people feed in a lot of stories. The readers themselves vote on those stories. The idea of news as a multi-perspectival and very contested thing is, is kind of really evident there. One could imagine maybe building games on that kind of a sure. notion of news. And, and I imagine it's technically and complicated and expensive. But were you to look at those more radical notions yeah. of journalism? Any, do any games pop to mind? Well, I mean, we, yeah, we try, I mean, we try to leave, we try to leave the, the, the door open in, 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 in the book and you know, say, well, these are the obvious things. Um, and these are, the, these are the areas that are most uncontroversially journalistic, or they have a relationship with existing journalistic practices. But I mean, you know, if you look at, look at, mine, look at the Minecraft community, Right, where like people make this weird stuff that you could say serves no purpose other than to advance the strangeness that is the Minecraft universe, um, and you know it's it, there's there, we, we've already talked about some of these sort of creation platforms and, and some of their vicissitudes, but there's something very different about this one, you know, because it it, it operates within this this strange fictional system in which um, 
there are resources available to you and you live in, in an incredibly unfriendly, dangerous environment and what are you going to do? Um, and so, you know, it's, it's not exactly like Slashdot. It's certainly not about news. But, but if you think about that fundamental model of given a certain circumstance and some very weird arbitrary tools, what are all the things that you can imagine doing with them? Then there's something, there's some kernel of, 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 a, of, of a direction that we could move in. Um, and that idea of like posing questions of, uh, I've, it's also occurred to me in the past with, with work on, on games and politics. Um, if I presented you with a sort of livable environment that, in so, that represented some subset of the social and policy constraints under which we have to go about our everyday lives, um, then what would you make of it? What would you change? Well, what would you do the same? Um, what would someone else do? Well, what if we aggregated whatever, what, what a bunch of other people would do and looked at that as, as a data system rather than just a behavioral system? Um, we worked in a game many years ago at the studio, w w which we sort of very casually talked about as doing sort of, you know, policy polling. And it was very crude and very small scale, but, but that idea of watching how people play, I mean, not, not with the idea that they were playing the way they believe, but that we were explicitly asking them to make those kinds of decisions. Uh, the American public media folks have actually done some of this analysis with the Budget Hero game, um, and they've, they've looked at the kinds, of, the kinds of value experimentation and um, um, uh, success and failure cases you know, that, that large volumes of players have, have pursued. But all of that remains invisible. So if we turn that into resources. I mean, those are, those are some angles. They, they are um, they're very different from they don't look much like normal uh, traditional news systems, um, which is maybe the virtue <laughs> of them, right? Uh, I, I, think, I think another direction, you know, that has some promise is um, the, the, just the idea of um, a, a kind of environment, right, of, of a sort of persistent environment that you could add to and remove from. So all of those, all of those platform examples that, that I showed are very hard to imagine, um, except in the case when one of them happens to be um, installed in a very popular uh, commercial product, which has not yet happened. So if you know, Elder Scrolls has, I don't know, right, like economics or climate change in it, then um, that's, that's a very different kind of intervention than I made a, I made a game about climate change that nobody's going to play. My question isn't related to your talk directly, but uh, it is of interest to me. How, what is the size of your laboratory or studio? Um, so the work, the work that the cartoonist stuff is coming out of, um, well, it changes over time. When we were doing the initial news games research, I had at, at max about a dozen students working in my lab. Um, and then you know, the three of us, when we sat down to do the work of writing the book, with, with the Cartoonist Project, we've got five, one, two, how many students am I funding? One, two, three, four, five. So between me and about nine, nine, nine to 12, it varies on a term-by-term basis um, between Georgia Tech and Santa Cruz. So it's, I guess it's roughly the same, a dozen or so, and then they cycle through. And what's the demographics of the, of the group? I mean, they, they're the demographics of our students, which you know, are, are actually reasonably broad. Uh, 
I actually, I think I had to write this down for some, uh, some uh, interim report for somebody. Mm -hmm. um, they've been, we have, a, we have about, I would say, and I'm eyeballing this a little bit, um, we have pretty terrible gender equity. Uh, we've had maybe like, you know, 25% women, um, but we have a, a, a reasonable distribution of, of ethnicities um, in our group. And I couldn't, I couldn't give you a good summary of it other than to say that it's better than that number. Um, and you know, they're all students too, right? So they're all young. Yeah. Do you think that helps the product in terms of producing something that, you know, that, that, that might go in the face of your funders and gives you a kind of uh, leverage to well, I, I certainly stand up? I don't have anything against my funders, of course. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think Knight's, I mean, in fairness, I think Knight's very aware of all of these factors mm -hmm. um, and are not looking to be, you know, sold a bill of goods. Um, but I think at the same time, we have to take into account that it's, it's like the peak whale thing. This is just not going to happen all at once. It's going to be really slow. So introducing a little bit of different perspective, we see a little bit of progress from. And what we need is a lot more of different, a lot more different perspectives over a longer period of time. Um, the other fact here is that, you know, as PIs on, on a project like this, Michael and I see the world in a very particular way. Michael in particular, for those of you who know Michael. Um, you know, and is that the right way? Or I don't know, but it's an interesting way. It's our way. Uh, what we really need are like, you know, a thousand of these sorts of projects with a thousand different sets of different people working on them that have their own different, you know, uh, backgrounds such that we get that diversity spread out rather than pretending like my one weird project would be better or worse, you know, if it had, uh, you know, uh, more people of color or more women. I mean, I think it would be better, but um, I don't think that solves the fundamental problem, which is that we need, we need more of this stuff that's being conceived and executed in more contexts, not just, not just at institutions like these, for example. That's it. That's all. Well, thanks very thanks. much, Ian. Thanks.